Hello, everybody. Welcome back to my second podcast. Again, my name is Olivia Sabatez, and we will still be talking about immigration. Uh, to reemphasize, I am a currently an intern at Power and Place, which promotes women in politics. At Power and Place, we encourage political involvement for young women through portraits, narratives, stories, and photos. In this particular podcast, we will be exploring the topic of immigration to the United States through articles, debates, and interviews. I hope you enjoy. I just recently watched a documentary on Netflix, which I really enjoyed, called Living Undocumented. Um, And this documentary highlights the lives of eight undocumented families living with fear of deportation here in the United States. This documentary exposes the ins and outs of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, better known as ICE. These eight families are from radically diverse locations and backgrounds from Honduras to Mexico to Israel to Mauritania to Colombia, all coming to America in hopes of a better future for themselves and for their families, many of whom are escaping or escaped dangerous situations in the past. This heart-wrenching documentary gives insight into the everyday fear that consumes these immigrant families, especially under the Trump administration, and how their lives have changed since the 2016 election. Even though harsh immigration policies have been implemented since the Clinton administration in the 1990s, under President Trump's zero-tolerance policy, all undocumented immigrants, regardless of criminal history, are under ICE jurisdiction and can legally be deported at any time, despite family ties or duration here in the United States. What were stringent immigration laws like the 1996 permanent bar under President Clinton or Obama's vow to deport all criminals entering the United States illegally turned into much more of a massive upheaval of working, tax-paying, undocumented people under the Trump administration's zero policy, removing all undocumented people regardless of their situation. This documentary enlightens its audience of the criteria for entering into the U.S. through applying for political asylum, a working or traveling visa, and the difficulties in being able to stay in the United States permanently. If you're interested in learning about the personal stories of those affected by this immigration system here in the United States, and it's changed throughout political administrations, I really, really recommend this documentary for you. Again, it's called Living Undocumented. Now you'll be listening to an interview that I had with Patricia Corrales, who is an attorney and represents criminal immigration-related matters and family visa-based petitions, and also specializes in criminal defense. I had the honor of talking to Ms. Corrales about her expertise, her background in politics, and how she got involved in immigration law, as well as pertinent information from Living Undocumented, which she partook in, like how marriage can affect the legal status of an undocumented citizen here in the United States, what repatriation is and how that can affect the immigrants here in the United States, the duration of time someone can be detained for, how the different administrations dealt with immigration from Bush to Clinton to Obama to now President Trump, uh, how the available visas for immigrants can affect each individual differently, along with many other pertinent topics and pertinent questions that I had. So I really recommend that you listen to this interview so that you can develop your own questions or fulfill the questions that you originally had. 
first, would you like to introduce yourself and just say a little bit about what you do and how you got involved in immigration law, how you got involved in living undocumented, uh, just to start off? Well, I'm a lawyer, of course. I've been yes. an, a lawyer for over 28 years. I don't want to age myself. And I started off uh, with the district attorney's office in Denver. And after practicing there for about five years, I moved back to California where I grew up and helped take care of my father who was ill at the time after the Northridge earthquakes. At the time, I was in California barred. I was just barred in Colorado and in DC. And so I had to find a job. And my aunt tells me, oh, well, INS, immigration's hiring. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what immigration was and I didn't know what INS was. So I ignored that and decided to apply for the district attorney's office in Los Angeles. And I learned then that the district attorney's office in Los Angeles um, was not doing lateral hires. So I didn't want to start all over in baby DA school when I had been already doing a murder right. case in Colorado. So I looked into federal prosecution and learned that, wow, you have to be California barred. So, you know, I took up my aunt's um, offer and looked into this thing called INS and learned that it was a prosecutorial agency. So I applied and joined the agency when it was known as INS, Immigration Naturalization Service in 1995. And when I first joined, I literally was astounded to know that the agency that dealt with immigration matters and uh, came to find out very early on that it was not really a, it was at the time that I joined in INS, it was under Bill Clinton. It wasn't really a prosecutorial agency. It was more of an agency that was deciding whether or not individuals uh, merit, you know, remaining here in the United States. It was more of a benefit looking forward agency as opposed to a prosecutorial agency that it is now. So I joined and it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. So I was really going to just stay there for a couple of months until I could pass the California bar and then probably move forward and right. move on to the DA's office. But I had a great mentor who um, recognized my trial skills and early on and said, hey, you know, you've got a lot of trial experience. Why don't I put you in this special section dealing with federal in federal litigation of immigration issues. So when the agency does something wrong and is being sued on you know immigration matters, you go to federal court and you defend the agency. So that's basically what I was doing. And then in that capacity, I specialized in something called denaturalization, the revocation of people's US citizenship status that was obtained by that was obtained illegally or by fraud or by misrepresentation. And I specialized in that in about for about 15 to 17 years. Um, and then I was with the agency from 1995 to 2012. In that interim, the agency went from INS to the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11 when it restructured and reorganized and called itself Department of Homeland Security. So at the time that I left the, the Department of Homeland Security, it was much more prosecutorial than it was when I first began. And so there was a more of an interest in making sure that individuals who violated our immigration laws, particularly those who have criminal backgrounds, were um, 
properly processed and deported. But it also was a fair agency. I think the agency has really, its policies has changed considerably under the Trump administration. And it's not one, it's not an agency that allows much discretion among its judges or among its attorneys or its prosecutors, but rather it's a strict policy quota kind of agency where you have to follow the current Trump administrative policies, otherwise you can get punished. And um, there, there's no room for discretion, no room for fairness, no room for balance. And that that's distinctly different from when I was a prosecutor under the agents uh, under INS and then with the Department of Homeland Security for so many years. I can honestly say that every single president I worked under, there was a fair and balanced approach to immigration. It's not that any longer. That is exactly one of the questions that I had. Um, so it said that you worked under numerous administrations. And so how does that differ from present day? And you've kind of touched upon that with like the zero tolerance policy that was mentioned in Living Undocumented. Is there any other ways that it has varied since you have left Homeland Security? Oh, absolutely. You know, this president is, uh, President Trump is good to say, is, is fast uh, at saying that the President Obama administration, or the Obama administration was also um, very or removal oriented and it also separated children from family members. That is unequivocally not the case. So under the Obama administration, there was no decision policy making apparatus that specifically um, that specifically told or, or advised its uh, officers or agents or attorneys to separate children from their families. That to me is, um, something that this administration has done and it's abhorrent to not only um, the policies of the Department of Homeland Security, but it is a complete violation of the Constitution. And frankly, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, the Trump administration by separating children from their families and orphaning many children are trafficking in children and kids. That is essentially what they're doing. They're allowing the trafficking of children because of their um, family separation policies. That is some. That is a policy that has never been part of the emblem of the uh, of the uh, mission of the agency when it was INS or when it became the Department of Homeland Security. Never. That is the central and focal distinction of this administration. Um, as it, as it relates to other administrations. Thank you, I appreciate that answer. And that's really interesting. Um, that actually was one of the main questions that I had when I watched the documentary uh, to see how that variation has changed throughout the years, throughout the decades even, and how it has especially changed under the Trump administration. So, so I have another question. Um, this is based off of the documentary as well, because I'd never heard of the term repatriation, my bad. Repatriation before, besides the time that I watched um, the documentary. And so, one of my questions is: Is it better for your country not to have repatriation if you don't, if you want to avoid being deported? So, if your country is not currently accepting their 
citizens back, would it would that technically be better for somebody who's living in the United States undocumented? Um, I'm not quite certain about the underpinnings of your question, but if you're saying if you're an individual who's been ordered deported and your country doesn't accept repatriate uh, doesn't repatriate its citizens, is that better for you? Will you be deported then? Well, the government of the United States cannot report, cannot deport or remove to a third country. So let's say I'm a citizen of Cuba. Traditionally, mm -hmm. does not, has not repatriated its citizens. There's been distinct times, very limited times where there's been diplomatic relations between the United States and Cuba, where Cuba agreed to repatriate its citizens back to its its country. But that's far and few between. You've got um, Vietnam, Laos, other countries that also don't have repatriation treaties. I can tell you this, that I'm not so sure it's, it's more difficult for the Department of Homeland Security to remove you back to your native country. The Department of Homeland Security most certainly cannot in any legal way repatriate you to a third country where you have no uh, okay. citizenship or nationality. But there were many instances, particularly as it relates to Cubans and Vietnamese as well, where repatriation wasn't uh, possible because Cuba wasn't accepting its citizens back, even though they've been deported. And many of those citizens who, we, who the Department of Homeland Security could not repatriate back to their um, native countries were held in detention infinitely without any wow. kind of, particularly the Mariel Cubans, many of the Mariel Cubans were held for indefinite times in detention and some of them are still detained because we cannot repatriate back to their country. So is it better? It depends. I think it depends on the circumstance of the individual's case. If an individual is from Vietnamese, Vietnam, excuse me, or from Cuba or from other countries where we don't have diplomatic relations and we cannot repatriate back, and that individual has criminal has a criminal history, well, that individual is probably going to be detained all their lives until there is some solution to returning them back to their country. Interesting. So if that's no, that is exactly what I was asking, so thank you. And then I think it's a common misconception, or at least um, I've heard many people believe that if you get married to somebody, like the show 90 Day Fiance, for example, if you get married to somebody here in the United States, then you are allowed to come live here permanently. Um, but in the documentary, it seems a little different. Do you have to apply for a residency to become a resident um, once you're married to that person? It's not automatic or do you have to, is there a process that you have to go through? Well, there's two different processes. One where you're in your native country, you fell in love with an American citizen and now that American citizen wants to petition you as his fiance, right? Mm -hmm. So you are consular processing as a fiance. And the other situation is you're here and you fell in love with a United States citizen. And now that United States citizen wants to immigrate you, but you're already in the United States. So different, two different processes. And even though they're two different processes, the main aspect of both is whether or not that marriage is bona fide. So simply because you're married to a United States citizen doesn't mean that you're automatically as uh, in using your terms, able to become 
a lawful permanent resident or hold any kind of lawful status in the United States because the government is going to investigate whether or not that marriage is bona fide and real or was it entered into for the purposes of evading the immigration laws so that you can have some status and then later on divorce the individual and still remain in the United States. So the question in these fiance petitions and these marriage petitions is whether the relationship is bona fide. Is it real or is it done for the purpose of obtaining an immigration benefit? If it was entered into with the intent for the individual benefiting from that relationship to gain some sort of legal status in the United States and it's not a real you know, bona fide relationship, there was no intent to have it be real, then that individual not only committed fraud, but that individual could be looking at having their application denied, being deported, and possible criminal proceedings against them for entering into a marriage uh, with no intent for that marriage to be real, but only for the sake of getting what most people know as the green card. So how do you verify that a couple, that like a marriage is bona fide? Well, that's really um, within the jurisdiction of the Department of Homeland Security agents will um, investigate uh, the bona fides of that marriage or that, that relationship by um, talking to neighbors. Um, if you're in this marriage, you're supposed to be living together. There are times where the agents may show up at the house at two o'clock in the morning to see whether or not you're actually sleeping in the same bed, whether you have clothes in, in each of, you know, have clothes in each other's, in the house that, that belong to, you know, one, each other, um, personal effects in the home. And they'll, they'll talk to employers. Um, they'll do their, um, groundwork to determine the bona fides of the marriage. You know, if you are married to someone, you're going to have joint banking accounts, joint saving accounts, joint credit cards. Uh, and though in this day and age, as a professional woman, I may not want to share my bank account information with my husband who has a tendency not to pay bills on time. So I may not want to have a joint account with him because I don't want to be I don't want my, you know, account being debited for, you know, mm -hmm. for, you know, for uh, bills that I didn't pay on time or something like that. So I don't think having a joint account is necessarily indicative of a bona fide relationship, but that's one of the things they look for. I, if I were the attorney for someone who is being um, accused of not entering into a, entering into a marriage that wasn't bona fide simply because my client didn't have joint accounts, I would literally file a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security for that because that's not, that's not right. indicative of anything. But you have to have other indicia. What's other indicia? You gotta live together. Right. You're not living, that's a big, mm, that's, a, that's a big red flag. Um, your friends and family members should know that, oh, he's married to so-and-so or she's engaged to so-and-so. There's got to have, there's got to be a, a sense of, of familiarity that you are in a relationship, that you hold yourself out to be in a relationship, that kind of thing. And uh, just one last question on this topic. So if you get a divorce from the person that you were married to and the marriage was bona fide, does that mean that you can still remain in the United States or are you still subject to deportation at that point? Well, that's a complicated um, question. It's actually 
um, loaded with different, different uh, legal legal issues. So if I'm married to someone and I'm married to that individual less than two years and that individual petitions me, then I become a conditional resident, conditioned on that fact that 90 days before the two-year anniversary, I file another application to get rid of the conditions because the marriage, I can prove that the marriage continues to be bona fide. If during those two years, I divorce the individual, I can still prove the bona fides of that marriage if it was my intent for, if I entered into that marriage with the intent for it to be bona fide, but certain things happen. The, the husband you know, became an abuser or the wife became an abuser. If there were reasons that did not allow me to continue in that relationship and I can establish those reasons and those reasons are of, uh, you know, of, uh, of a nature of domestic abuse or emotional abuse uh, or death, then I can still remain in the United States with my um, conditional residence. Got it, thank you. But if I get a green card, and then right after I get that green card, I divorce the individual who petitioned me to get that green card, that is a huge red flag for the Department of Homeland Security because now they may have missed it once, but they're not gonna miss it a second time. Right, okay. And what's the longest that somebody can be detained? You said that sometimes it's indefinitely depending on the repatriation, but... No, it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with repatriation. Repatriation is just one yeah. process. If you are ordered or deported to a country that doesn't accept you, you could be, and you have criminal history, you mm -hmm. could be detained indefinitely. But right. even if you're, um, you're a native uh, and citizen of a country that we that does re, uh, that we do have diplomatic relations with and that does accept repatriation of its citizens, you could still be detained in, um, indefinitely if you've committed certain crimes, and you know it, it really is dependent on the nature of the crimes. So there used to be this case, the Supreme Court case, that said, "Hey, you can't indefinitely just keep people in jail forever and ever." That's just really not fair and equitable and, and just. Um, there's, there's this big violation going on for keeping people in jail forever. And that Supreme Court case really was instrumental in allowing many individuals who had been kept for a long time to ask for bonds. But then good old President Trump came in to power in 2017 and basically has ignored these laws that mm -hmm. exist and has created his own policies by executive order and executive you know, decision that undermines these court cases. And what we find is that individuals are being detained indefinitely. And wow. unless, unless they say, hey, you know what? I don't wanna be detained, just deport me back to my country because they're, they're no longer wanting to be housed, to be, you know, is stuck in these this little cell in the, in the four walls that they get to see. They want to just be free, and so freedom for them means that they have to give up their right or their right to seek asylum, their right to seek refugee status, their right to seek adjustment of the United adjustment in the United States. It means them saying, "Just deport me." You know, they're they're fed up, so they get they agree to a deportation. And 
is what are the grounds for appeal besides political asylum for, you know, refugees who want to come to the United States? Grounds for appeal, what do you mean? They, they wouldn't grant them political asylum because it wasn't full political asylum. It was one, they were struggling financially and two, they were also struggling because the cartels were threatening them. So the United States didn't grant them political asylum. Are there other means that they could apply for in order to come to the United States besides a political asylum? Well, y yes and no. I mean, other than political asylum, other ways you can come to this country lawfully is if a family member who is a U.S. citizen um, or a lawful permanent resident of petitions you, or if an employer petitions you because you have certain skills that employer needs, or you're an entertainer and you want to make a movie and, you know, the movie studio wants to petition you. So there are different ways to enter the United States lawfully. Asylum is a lawful way to enter the United States. Mm -hmm. There are people who are persecuted in their native countries that are fleeing horrendous situations, horrible, torturous situations that you cannot imagine because we haven't lived through that, that, that horror that these individuals have lived. To apply for political asylum, it's very clear that there's only five grounds for which you can be granted political asylum. Um, the five grounds are you're being persecuted because of your race. You're being persecuted because of your religion. You're being persecuted because of your sex. You're being persecuted for your political opinion. And you're being persecuted because you're a member of a certain particular social group that is persecuted because of the way they, that group is, um, is physically, is socially. So for example, in the Sudan, homosexuals are persecuted by the government. Um, that's what a particular social group is. And persecution isn't based on a person persecuting. It's the government or agents of the government that are persecuting you. So for example, the, the cartels are not okay. the government, right? Mm -hmm. But an argument can be made, and a good lawyer should make this argument, that in Mexico in particular, the government <laughs> has no control over the cartels. They have no way of enforcing their laws to protect their citizens against the cartels. And in fact, the cartels have infiltrated you know, various levels of the Mexican government such that the cartels could be said to be ag agents of the government because they're, they're, they've infiltrated the, the the Mexican government either by bribery or, you know, they paid people off. So one can argue that even though it's a criminal organization, a criminal enterprise that is persecuting me, that criminal enterprise is really persecuting me as an agent of the government of Mexico because the government of Mexico has been infiltrated by this, 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 um, um, criminal organization and the government of Mexico makes no, uh, it takes no action against them to protect me, the citizen of Mexico. So there are arguments that you can make that can um, tie the cartels to the Mexican government so that the argument for persecution, the argument for asylum can be realized. So it, it's really dependent on the facts of a case.
So for example, in Living Undocumented, the man from Mauritania, he wasn't, he was, he was subject to deportation, but couldn't he technically file for political asylum still, even though, because they said Mauritania is still one location where there's slavery that is present in everyday society. Does that, is that like involvement with the government or would that be more of like the society as a whole so he wouldn't be able to be granted? No, that was actually the government, but he did apply for political asylum. Okay. And he wasn't, and I can't speak about his case, so I can only, for reasons that I'm not aware of, his asylum application was denied. So on what basis it was denied, I don't know. Okay. And then this is also, this is in regards to the documentary. How long has that 10 year policy been implemented for um, undocumented citizens who have left the country and, and need to wait 10 years before they can re-enter legally? Because they've overstayed their visa past six months. So that policy is not a policy, it's a change in the law. And that was implemented, uh, in- that law became effective April 1st, 1997. It was implemented under the Clinton uh, Clinton administration in September of 1996. And um, that particular change in the law provided for what's known in the immigration circles as the three-year and the 10-year bar. So if you've been in the United States illegally more than six months and then leave the United States voluntarily for whatever reason, doesn't matter the reason, you just leave. And then you re-enter, so the moment you leave after being in the United States illegally for six months, you are subject to the three-year bar. Three years, you have to stay outside before you can legally immigrate to the United States. If you've been in the United States for a year or more illegally without status, and you leave the United States and and then you try to return to the United States illegally, you're subject to the 10-year bar. If you return after leaving illegally, you're subject to the permanent bar. So the, the three, the 10, and the permanent bar um, inadmissibility grounds were established in 1996 and became effective April 1st, 1997 with the change of um, IRA-IRA, which is the Illegal Immigration Reform Act. Um, so what are the different visas that you can apply for to come to the United States? I am familiar with like the tra- the travel visa, the working visa, and the student visa. Are there any other ones? Well, again, depends on the basis for which you're seeking to come to the United States. You have the B1, B2, which is the visitor visa. I want to come, you know, tour Disneyland, okay, mm-hmm. or visit family. Uh, B1, B2, I'm coming in, I mean, B2, B2, I'm, B1 is the business visa. I'm coming in to go to a conference related to my profession. It's a business-related reason. Mm-hmm. You have the F1 visa, student visa. You have an, the O and the P visas, which are the um, um, entertainment visas, the professional visas, the athlete visas. Um, those are the O and the Ps visas. Uh, You've got H-1B for those who are like in the tech industry and they're coming over here to, you know, um, to work for Microsoft or Apple. Um, You've got H-1B visas and H-1B visas have caps. And that's what Trump stopped with when the pandemic occurred. One of the things that the Trump administration did was put a kibosh on H-1B visas. 
no more bringing in people from other countries to work, you know, in the land of the, the tech companies, no more. And the tech companies, you know, were pretty um, angry at, about that because what the Trump administration did was essentially cut off the right of companies like Microsoft and Apple and Google and, you know, um, all those tech companies from bringing in you know, individuals who could help their companies grow. And by doing that, the Trump administration took away the power of immigration from Congress. And it's really the power of immigration lies with Congress. It doesn't lie with the president. Mm -hmm. So that was very, that was something that I believe that the government, that President Trump had no authority to do that, but that hasn't stopped him before. Mm -hmm. Probably won't stop him again, you know, until we reelect, until we elect, you know, a Biden. Um, right. And get rid of Trump. And is there, does the government have a discretionary basis for a visa depending on your family or your relationship status? Like if you're married to somebody here, or if you're a student versus like an older person, do they have, does it depend on that at all? Or is it all in variation? It did before Trump. It mm -hmm. no depends since Trump. So in fact, um, earlier this year in, and actually late last year and early the, uh, this year, um, one of the uh, directors under, the director of USCIS, Ken Carcelli, uh, made it clear that if you're coming into the United States and you're an elderly elderly person because you were petitioned by your daughter who's a U.S. citizen and she wants to make sure that her mom is here so she's going to immigrate her mom. Well, now the government is going to look at the age factor because if that mom is coming to the United States and doesn't have health insurance and can't speak English and can't hold her own weight, then the government can use that as a basis to deny admission to the United, to deny admission to the United States even if that elderly mom has all her kids living here in the United States. That never used to be the case, but it is now. Wow. Oh, yes. So I find it really interesting that some of the undocumented citizens that were here in the United States in the documentary had to check into the customs or ICE um, office every once in a while, once a year, just depending on the person. Why is that enforced? And what makes one of them get detained and one of them get released? Good question. So before President Trump became um, our president, under the Obama administration, there was, and even under the Bush administration, there was a set of priorities. You know, there are a lot of individuals who may be in the United States that don't have legal documentation to be here. And, but we don't have enough, but the Department of Homeland Security doesn't have enough agents, officers to process all these people. So we're gonna decide, or the department's gonna decide who is going to, who we're gonna prioritize in terms of, we're gonna focus on to try to deport and who we're not gonna focus on and try to deport. So an individual could have, before the Trump administration, an individual could have been a, convicted of a crime, but their crime wasn't so uh, significant. Their crime wasn't violent. Mm -hmm. And 
it was, you know, property crime or it was a drug related crime. Um, but that's all they had. They were subject to being deported because of that crime. But in the scheme of things, this individual had family ties in the United States, paid their taxes. And yeah, they had a crime, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't um, a significant, serious uh, crime that posed a national threat or a, a threat to the community. So that individual could um, be placed in deportation, but not deported, and they'd have to check in with ICE. And the check-ins, those are the check-ins were mainly of individuals who already were deported, ordered deported, but again, not yet. They weren't significant threats to the community, so they allowed them to just check in every year to make sure everything was still, um, for lack of a better term, hunky dory. They hadn't committed additional crimes. They still were in the same location. They're still married. They're still paying their taxes. So they just have to check in and say, hey, I'm still here. I'm still abiding by all the rules and regulations of this great country. Uh, I've not put myself in any more trouble. Um, and I'm just living my life. Since the Trump administration uh, took office, the administration has uh, has bas basically made it absolutely clear that those check-ins, while they continue, they are now going to start deporting individuals. So physically initiating the deportation process. So before someone could be ordered deported for maybe 10 years and, and 10 years we couldn't physically deport them because they weren't, you know, they weren't a priority, right? Mm -hmm. So they'd have to just check in those 10 years and still be allowed to work in, the, in this country and, and with the understanding that, you know, they weren't going to be physically deported, but they would have to check in with ICE. Um, now that's not the case. So when you have check-ins, it's very scary for a lot of individuals because you could be just detained immediately and they could try to begin the process of deporting you. So in one of the case, in Vinny's, in Vinny's case, in the deep documentary, Vinny comes from a country where they don't allow for repatriation. So what do you do with Vinny? right? He's been ordered deported because of his crime. But his country doesn't, ex won't take him back. So what do you do? He's kind of in limbo, right? In Vinny's case, he was just reporting every year. And every year he would report, he has no further crimes, he's living a good life, he's changed his life around, he's a godly man, he's going, he goes to church, he's taking care of his wife, his child, he works, he pays taxes, he's involved in his community. But Vinny had to check in. And he was checking in now with new policies under the Trump administration, and he was very scared that he could have been he could be detained. And if they decided to detain Vinny, Vinny would be one of these individuals who would be indefinitely detained, indefinitely, because yeah. Laos would not be able to they would not be able to repatriate him back to Laos. That makes sense. I understand that. And then, um, so for the undocumented citizens that have children here, President Trump, they call them anchor babies, which I'd never heard of until this documentary. Do, are, do these children help their parents um, emigrate here legally by giving them a residency or? No, I think, I, I think the whole notion of anchor baby, first of all, um, I think that term is, uh, is very derogatory and I wouldn't oh, be. Derogatory, yeah. I wouldn't be using that term. 
that term. These are not anchor babies. These are individuals who are born in the United States. They are United States citizens with all the privileges and, and uh, privileges um, and benefits that a U.S. citizen has. They're clothed with protection of the Constitution. They're not anchor babies. Mm -hmm. and, and this misconception that just because you have a child in the United States, you're going to be able to immigrate is a false misconception that I want to set straight here, set straight. Just because you have a, a United States citizen child doesn't mean that that child is going to be able to help you immigrate. First of all, that child cannot help you immigrate until they're 21 years old. Mm. Father or mother could immigrate in those 21 years through an employer, not necessarily their child. They could find a different way to immigrate. They could be victims of a crime and they can immigrate through the U visa process. So having a child doesn't necessarily mean that that child can immigrate you or that that child will immigrate you. And that child can't help you until that child is 21 years of age. And things, a lot of things can happen in those 21 years, right? Mm -hmm. So even if that let's say the child turns 21 and now hooray my child is 21 yay i can i can become a resident no that's not that's not the case either because a lot depends people ask the wrong question you will have to ask the right question the the wrong question isn't when my child is 21 can i immigrate that's the wrong question the right question is how did you enter the united states because how the person enters the United States is going to dictate whether that person gets to immigrate or not, whether or not they have a U.S. citizen child or not, or not. So if you entered illegally and you have, you entered illegally and you gave birth to a child in the United States and that child 21 years later now can petition you, you're not going to be able to immigrate into the United States because your initial entry was illegal unless you of one of the exceptions, unless you can prove that the child is in the military, well, maybe you can apply for parole in place, or unless you can establish that you are afforded the protections under two, Section 245I, which is a different law you know, under the Immigration Act. If you can't establish any of these two exceptions, you don't get to immigrate. And you're so what is, so a child being born here doesn't necessarily mean that the parent gets to become a resident, it doesn't give the parent any, uh, any assurances of any legal status. So that's such a falsehood that, mm -hmm. needs, that needs to be cleared up because that's, that's just a, a misconception. So are the parents still subject to deportation when the child, before the child is 21? Well, even after as well. Yes. But, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just having a kid doesn't, a U.S. citizen kid does not save you. Save you. And then um, the Hileras, are they intended to scare these undocumented citizens from trying to come over illegally again? Or what, what are the tactic behind these freezing rooms? Well, I can't speak to why, uh, what's the tactic, but the tactic is clearly to scare these, to scare in, you know, people and because we call them immigrants, but we're all immigrants. These are individuals, right. these are beings. They're intended to scare individuals. They're intended to also make it so uncomfortable for them that they don't want to continue to stay there. So they give up their rights to pursue asylum. They're give up the rights to seek redress with the immigration courts 
they'd rather just sign their deportation so they can get out of those that setting that's the intention and then can you explain the permanent bar by passed by the clinton administration um i think i touched on it before but let me just yeah go ahead if you enter the united states illegally and you remain in the united states be illegally or unlawfully and, and you acquire or accrue unlawful presence and then you leave the United States, you, you know, depart from the United States and you try to re-enter and you re-enter again illegally. Now you are permanently barred from ever becoming a resident of the United States through a family-based petition or an employer-based petition. And so what if, for example, you say that you're a US citizen when you're really not a US citizen, um, does that also permanently bar you from becoming a legal citizen in the future? Yes, but that's a different bar. Um, yes. So in 1996, when the law was changed, one of the, uh, in addition to the three and 10 year and permanent bars for inadmissibility, the, um, the Immigration Naturalization Service added, and Congress added a, a different section into the Immigration Nationality Act that would permanently bar an individual from ever becoming a resident of the United States. And that, um, that basis for the bar is known as the false claim to US citizenship. So if you falsely claim to be a US citizen, you would, anytime after April 1st, 1997, you would be forever barred from ever becoming a lawful permanent resident of the United States with one exception. And that exception is, for example, let's say all your family members were U.S. citizen. You grew up thinking you were a U.S. citizen. They told you you were born in the United States. Your mom and dad made you believe that that's, you were born here. So you knew no better until you found out when you couldn't go to college. Like a lot of these DACA folks, right? They wanted to apply for, doc, for college and hey, they needed a social security number. So that's when they really found out you know what, I wasn't really born in the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, all this time, that individual was ha- holding themselves out to be a U.S. citizen when they weren't. Now that person meets somebody, falls in love, and that person they meet is a U.S. citizen, and that person wants, their spouse now wants to immigrate them. Can that person become a resident? I would argue that that person meets the exception that is carved into the law, where he can show that he had a reasonable belief that he was a U.S. citizen because everybody around him was a U.S. citizen. His mom, his dad, his brothers, his sisters, his parents never told him the real truth that they went to Mexico for you know, a weekend and he was born there and they brought him back in and they didn't want him to have any complexes. You know, They didn't want him to feel bad. So they raised him as if he was a U.S. citizen, always told him that story he didn't know any better i'd win that case and he then that that would not prevent that individual from becoming um a resident of the united states but that exception is very narrow it and doesn't still, sorry that's still under the permanent bar though it's just another section of it no there's a there is it's a permanent bar but it's a different so the immigration nationality act has different basis for which you are inadmissible. One okay. of the 
which are inadmissible where it permanently bars you is the false claim to citizenship. You're also inadmissible if you've been here, if you have the three year or the 10 year or the permanent bar, okay? And you're also admissible if you've ever been convicted of any drug related offenses, never gonna be able to become a resident of the United States. Okay. And then um, you kind of touched upon a really interesting point. So if you, someone went on a family vacation and they were pregnant and they had their child in another country, how difficult would it be for that child to have dual citizenship or um, to become a citizen of the United States? Well, it depends. Um, there's, there are what we call citizenship uh, laws that determine whether someone acquires citizenship at time of birth or someone derives citizenship at a later time. And so if I was, if my, both my parents were US citizens and they decided to go to Canada, you know, for a trip, and I happened to be born in Canada, would I also be a US citizen at the time of my birth? Much depends on the year of my birth, what, uh, how many years my parents resided in the United States before I was born. So there's certain charts that you'd have to look at. It's like a puzzle. It's a very intriguing right. legal puzzle. So it's not, there's not one set answer to, um, to that question, but an individual can be born in a different country and still be a U.S. citizen based on whether that person acquired or derived. Very interesting. And then I also found it really interesting in the documentary how what was the last couple uh, who they moved to Canada? Oh, the, yes. They were the DACA couple. Yes. He applied for DACA, but he was married to a U.S. citizen mm -hmm. and wanted to petition him. But they learned that um, he had his house yeah. had, had claimed that he was a fall, uh, U.S. citizen to get a job, Right. Because he had claimed that he was a U.S. citizen to gain a benefit, the benefit being a job, he was forever barred from becoming a resident of the United States. So why don't, and this is just me out of curiosity, it's not really a common thought, but why don't some of these undocumented citizens who have been barred from becoming a citizen of the United States apply for citizenship to Canada, for example? Oh, I couldn't tell you that. That's a personal decision. Okay, so yeah, that makes sense. I was just curious when I when I watched the documentary. And then um, another point was, what is the National Liberation Army exactly? And why does it pose so much of a threat? I, that might be a, a naive question, but that was another point in the documentary. Columbia? Columbia? Yeah, yes. Um, well, Colombia has traditionally had a lot of uh, political difficulties and has had a lot of um, terrorist organizations um, within its own borders. And so that particular group has is considered um, more than just your regular, beyond a, a unorganized criminal enterprise, it's considered a, um, what we call a tier three um, terrorist organization. And so it's like the FARC in, in, um, in Colombia. It, it, it poses a lot of threats to, to its citizens, depending on the involvement of the citizen, 
from Colombia in the political, you know, and the political regime of its country. So I can it's not a, an easy explanation. I'm not an right. expert in Colombia politics, but the State Department of the United States puts out a State Department report for every country. And in its State Department report, it will um, signify which groups within that country are becoming, you know, are, are, are targeting its citizens. So. And then this is a different topic, but is ICE allowed to ask for photo ID or papers without a probable cause? Um, an ICE officer can't go up to your home and say, hey, I want to see what your, I want to see your identification. I want to see papers that you have that say that you have a right to remain in the United States or that you have some sort of status in the United States. They can't do that unless they have reasonable suspicion to believe that you are not here legally. Reasonable suspicion is a, a little bit different from probable cause. Um, so if they don't have reasonable suspicion to believe that I'm here illegally, they cannot ask those kind of questions or solicit that kind of information. So not all ICE officers or agents are, um, are, as, are, are aggressive or mm -hmm. as aggressive as seen in, in the documentary or in our documentary of Living Undocumented or in the new documentary of Immigration Nation. Not all ICE officers are like that, but there are many like those featured that don't understand the rule, their parameters, their legal parameters, um, or they understand it and they don't, they don't care and they violate it in any event. You're gonna find bad apples and good apples in any profession. And so there are some officer, uh, ICE officers who violate the laws and who violate the due process rights of individuals. There are officers who knowingly, because someone looks Hispanic or Latino, will approach that individual and give them a harder time than they would someone who looks Armenian, right? Or looks white. So the law is very clear. Unless you have reasonable suspicion to believe that individual is here illegally in the United States, there's no right to ask for identification, no right to ask for their name or where they're from. Nice. I have uh, two more questions. Thank you so much again for your time. I know it's almost been an hour. But what are the chances that families will be reunited once they've been separated? This, I know this is kind of a loaded question in terms of it, it varies, but I found that also interesting in the documentary because I know that one 12-year-old niece was reunited, but they didn't know when they would be reunited. She got taken again. So right. Every case is very, is is different. I can tell you that the ACLU has sued the Department of Homeland Security to reunite these children who were forcibly, forcibly separated from their parents. Um, the court has ordered the Department of Homeland Security to track down these children that they, that they gave to other families. So these children were forcibly taken from their parents they weren't even put up for adoption. They were placed in foster care. And the government had no right to do that. They had no authority to take these kids. They're not the government's kids. They're, you know, Joe Smith's kids or Juan's mm -hmm. kids. But the government took them away 
put them in foster care, and then these individual, these kids were adopted. The, I, in my opinion, I think the uh, Department of Homeland Security engaged in child trafficking. How can you not see that? They mm -hmm. allow these children to be fostered and allowed these children to be adopted without the permission of their parents simply because these children came with their parents to try to find a better life in this country. That is probably the most sinister and inhumane practices of this department um, mm -hmm. in my lifetime. Now the court has in this lawsuit that was brought by the ACLU has ordered the Department of Homeland Security to provide the whereabouts of all these children and to reunite these children with their families. In terms of how many of these children have been reunited, I don't know. Mm -hmm. The information that can be found online. The lawsuit is very public, so people can find that online. Yeah, I'll go look at that. Thank you. And then my last question is also a really big question. It's pretty broad, but it's just how in general can we fix the current immigration system? Because Oh, I that's a Yeah. Oh, yeah, because of the backlog and there are people that aren't receiving visas for years and years and years at a time. But yeah, that's, if, that's a loaded question. I, I think that President George Bush, uh, George W. Bush and um, President Obama were on the right track. We can't create an amnesty. It'd be unrealistic. This country is not ready for an amnesty. And I don't think it's fair to uh, necessarily grant a, 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 you know, a widespread amnesty. I think there should be a merit-based system. Everything has to be with balance. I mean, we can't all believe that none of us are above reproach. Mm -hmm. A lot of individuals who are US citizens who have committed crimes. So we have to look at each case individually and decide, okay, so this person did commit, you know, he, he does have a conviction for uh, driving under the influence of alcohol. He didn't, luckily didn't kill anybody. Yeah, he shouldn't have driven, you know, uh, his car under the influence of alcohol. But who hasn't and ever just had a had a you know a, a glass of wine and got behind the wheel of their car thinking they were fine and drove? I mean, I, I think we have to look at these kinds of cases, you know, on an individual basis and see not only the um, the circumstances of their unlawful behavior, but also the impact that this individual has made in their family, in their community, and in the country as a whole. As a whole, have they paid their taxes? Have they contributed to uh, their community by either volunteering hours or by maybe they, I had a, a client who every single month, even though this client barely made $1,500 to $2,000 a month, every month without question, $100 was given to St. Jude's organization. You know, do they make those kind of contributions? Are they charitable? Are they good people? Are they, um, do they try to be law-abiding? Um, we have to look at those factors on an individual basis to determine the merits and the, of whether or not someone should become a resident of the United States. And being a, becoming a resident of the United States gives them a pathway to U.S. citizenship. Those are the types of factors that the Bush administration was looking at and the Obama administration was looking at during the time where they wanted to reform our immigration laws to look to create this balanced merit-based immigrate, uh, you know, uh, 
in our laws. And it has never been a, able to be a success because you don't want the right wing Tea Party, a Republican Party, um, they, they just want to cut off immigration as a whole. And I find it hypocritical because as someone, as, as someone said in last night's uh, Democratic Convention, we're all immigrants. Unless you're right. born Native American, you immigrated from family who immigrated here to the United States. Right. And immigrants really have contributed so much to this country. And, and have solidified the foundations of this country, just as any other person has. And I think we have to look at that with those, that kind of, uh, that kind with those kinds of eyes, and 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 be ready to be fair about it. I, I don't think we can let everybody in, but I don't think we need to be xenophobic of, of, about it either. Right. Right. No wants nobody wants the gang member from El Salvador who's you know torched a family to death or you know who's killed people coming to the United States nobody wants that yeah. no reasonable individual is going to say let that person in mm -hmm. but that's different from letting a, a mother or father and their child come in who are fleeing that kind of violence from their country and allowing them to build a better life here in this country that's that's highly different and so i think we can't just blanketly say everybody's the same you've got to look at everything on individual and um, uh, basis well thank you so much miss Krause, for your time this has been super helpful and very educational i feel like i learned a lot the recording cut out a little bit but it was a wonderful interview and i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did as you can notice, you were learning it just as much as I was learning the material. I had a lot of questions that she thankfully answered completely. So, Ms. Corrales, again, thank you for listening to this, and thank you all for listening to the interview. Now you will be listening to an interview that I had with Sochi Medrano, or as I like to call her, Mike Dita. You will be listening to her life story, how she came to the United States legally, how many family members were already here, and you'll be listening to her inspirations and how she's been doing here in the United States. I love talking to Tita because I learned so much and there were so many things that I honestly didn't know about her life story. So I really encourage you to take a listen. Uh, I think you'll be really interested. Tenemos a Tita aquí con nosotros hoy. Bienvenido, Tita. Tita es básicamente una parte de mi familia que vino aquí desde El Salvador. Hola, Tita. Hola, muy buenas tardes. Mi nombre... Mi nombre... Completo es Xochitl Mercedes Medrano Araujo. Tengo 71 años y vine en el año 94 a este país, traída con residencia, pedida por mi hijo. Y ese fue mi motivo de, de venir a este país. Yo vine a este país con papeles, 
vine, tuve que renunciar a mi trabajo de 20 años para venir a, a ayudar a mi hijo a cuidar a sus dos niños que estaban pequeños porque ellos tenían eh, problemas para que les cuidaran a sus niños porque tanto él como su esposa trabajaban. Entonces, pues, yo vine en mayo cuando me dieron la residencia y me regresé a mi país y después volví ya en noviembre ya a quedarme definitivamente. Y ese, es mi, ese fue mi objetivo de venir a este país a ayudar a mi hijo con sus hijos. Qué bien, tita. ¿Y cuánto tiempo le llevó convertirse en ciudadano y cuál fue el proceso? Eh, el problema mío fue por el inglés que yo tardé 15 años de ser residente para poderme hacer ciudadana porque cuando uno no ha cumplido los 55 años, por ley se tiene que hacer eh, el examen en inglés. Entonces, para mí fue más cómodo esperar que el tiempo pasara y cuando yo tuviera mis 55 años, entonces yo ya lo hice en español mi, mi examen, el cual eh, me dieron 100 preguntas, pero luego, como ya tenía 55 años de las 100 preguntas, solo me, me dieron 20 preguntas para aprendérmelas, en las cuales, gracias a Dios, yo eh, de las 20 solo me preguntaron 8 y tuve un gran éxito. Pero lo que yo quiero dar a, a entender que por la falta del inglés a veces retrasamos hacer nuestras cosas legalmente porque muchas personas que venimos a este país que nuestros hijos nos mandan a traer ya venimos adultas y entonces ya con el inglés como que no, no nos ponemos, eh, no nos gusta, lo hallamos difícil. Entonces a veces nosotros atrasamos todo el, todo el proceso porque después de, la, de ser residente, a los cinco años en inglés, usted ya puede hacerse ciudadano. Yo tuve que esperar 15 años por la falta de, de haber aprendido inglés. Mi proceso, el proceso es eh, toda mi familia por parte del papá, no, la familia de, por parte del papá de mi hijo, todas estas personas entraron a este país con su residencia. Entonces su papá cuando mi hijo tenía 14 años lo mandó a traer. Luego mi hijo a los 18 años se hizo ciudadano y me, me mandó a traer a mí. Entonces este, el proceso pues eh, que mi hijo eh, tenía que haberse hecho ciudadano para poderme mandar, pedirme a mí. Y entonces yo entré aquí como residente de los Estados Unidos. Y Tita, ¿crees que el proceso de inmigración debe cambiar para que sea más accesible para los inmigrantes? Bueno, depende si la persona entra ilegalmente o legal, o legalmente, ya que los estatus migratorios influyen la estabilidad emocional, por ejemplo, como los lazos familiares, porque nosotros los, las personas latinas somos personas eh, muy apegadas a nuestras familias, y entonces nos gusta uh, ayudar a nuestras familias y ver si las podemos traer, pero cuesta mucho todo el proceso. Eh, hay un límite de 18 años para poder traer a, a nuestros seres queridos eh, cercanos 
para poderlos eh, traer a este país cuando somos legalmente nosotros eh, ciudadanos o somos residentes. Eh, yo pienso que cada país tiene su criterio con las leyes de ponernos a nosotros que venimos de otros países y a veces hay mucho problema con el sistema económico de las personas que no pueden pagar esas grandes cantidades porque hay personas que son hasta 5, 6, 7 del núcleo familiar y es mucho dinero. Entonces yo pensaría de que deberían de, de por lo menos a los niños menores de edad eh, que el gobierno le diera esa ayuda de que solo los papás tendrían que pagar todo lo del papeleo, porque sí hay gente que no puede pagar todo eso y por eso hay mucha gente que se queda, aquí vive mucha gente hasta la vejez sin hacerse ciudadano americano, solos por residente, porque no, no es mucho el cambio. Eh, lo mismo que tú puedes vivir en este país como residente toda tu vida, no va son pocas las cosas que cambian de beneficios, porque en mi caso, para mí solo han habido dos beneficios cuando yo me hice ciudadana americana. Una es para poder votar para las elecciones y otra es que puedes estar más tiempo en otro país sin que pierdas los derechos porque si tú eres residente y tú vas a tu país y te quedas más el tiempo porque no puedes estar más de 84 días fuera de este país porque tú pierdes tu residencia. Pero si tú eres ciudadano, tú estás más tiempo. Esos son los beneficios de ser ciudadano. Pero a veces cuesta mucho. Por ejemplo, mi ejemplo, por el inglés yo no me hice más fácil. Sí. Tuve que esperar... 15 años hasta poderlo hacer en español y hoy cada día va más caro el, eh, el pago de, de todos los papeles que hay que hacer entonces sí yo pienso que hay cosas que tienen que cambiar a ser más accesibles pero cada año que pasa yo veo que están poniendo eh, más y más y más problemas para poderse hacer ciudadanos, cuando si ya tenemos tantos años de estar aquí como residentes y hemos pagado nuestros impuestos y somos gente de bien, yo pienso que no nos deberían de poner tanto problema. Sí, claro que sí. Es difícil ser inmigrante aquí en, en los Estados Unidos y es difícil de asimilar. Pienso que hoy en día es diferente que 20, 30 años en el pasado. Es muy diferente porque hace 26 años que yo vine a este país, eh, como dije anteriormente, el problema de nosotros los latinos es que somos muy apegados a nuestras familias. Y cuando tú vienes a este país, yo venía contenta porque venía a estar con mi hijo, porque yo tuve que renunciar a 20 años de mi trabajo para poder venir a ayudar a mi hijo aquí. Pero mi otra gente que yo dejaba allá, a mi madre, mis hermanos, mi otra hija, nietos, para mí fue duro porque no asimilamos. El, el, las costumbres son diferentes completamente. Eh, los cambios de clima, eh, las costumbres, el inglés. Ahí te, te sentís al principio 
unos, yo llegué a, por dos años a pasar consulta con psicólogo y con psiquiatra porque a mí me dio una depresión horrible porque los cambios son bruscos. Entonces sí, sí cuesta adaptarse a este país, pero si nosotros venimos a este país a lo que venimos, a trabajar, a prosperar. Este país es un país de oportunidades. Lo que pasa es que viene mucha gente y la desperdicia. Pero aquí el que quiere venir a hacer algo lo es. Porque aquí puedes trabajar en la mañana, en la tarde y por la noche. Así es que aquí el que quiere venir a hacer y vivir como se debe de vivir, se puede lograr y si cumplimos y respetamos las leyes de los Estados Unidos. Bien repuesta, Tita. ¿Y recibe algún beneficio federal? Federal. <ríe> federal. 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 Durante cuando, el tiempo que es... Oye, sí. cuando tú... Eh, eh, una palabra te cueste, agarra un papel y un lápiz. Sí, sí. Y, ¿Y escribir. Sí. Ok. Gracias, Tita. Otra vez. ¿Recibe algún beneficio federal? Federal. Federal. Ajá. Durante el tiempo que espera para convertirse en ciudadano. La verdad es que no, porque tú, para hacerte ciudadano, tú ya eres residente. Entonces, si tú eres residente, tú puedes trabajar, tú pagas tus impuestos, entonces no necesitas estar recibiendo ayuda federal. Porque tú trabajas y tú puedes pagar tus... Aunque hay muchas iglesias y hay muchas entidades que ayudan a gente de escasos recursos a llenar papeles o gente que tal vez no puede pagar lo que se paga de los papeleos, sí hay gente que reciben ayuda. Pero yo pienso que si nosotros somos ciudadanos, somos residentes, pues trabajamos y no tenemos ningún problema. No es como el, la persona que está ilegal que sí eh, tienen que pedir ayudas, pero si los que estamos con residentes y que tenemos años trabajando y todo, eh, por lo menos yo nunca he recibido una ayuda federal. Sí, claro que sí. ¿Hay personas en tu vida que ayudar con tu trabajo o con tu vida personal aquí en los Estados Unidos? Eh, la gran ayuda mía... Eh, fue de que gracias a Dios eh, hay muchas personas que vienen a este país y no tienen quien los ayude ni económica ni moralmente gracias a Dios yo vine porque mi hijo me trajo y yo todo este tiempo yo he vivido con él en su casa entonces esa es una ayuda porque la gente que sí no tiene familia, que no tiene quien los apoye, y yo he tenido ese apoyo de, de mi hijo emocionalmente, pero él me enseñó que a este, él me enseñó y me dijo, mamá, en este país se trabaja, en este país no es un país de venir a vivir y a pedir todo regalado. Entonces, mi hijo me enseñó a que este país se viene a trabajar y no se viene a pedir a que todo se lo den a uno regalado. Uno tiene que pagar, ni siquiera cu cuando a mí me hicieron, cuando a mí me dieron mi, que yo me retiré del social, 
me dijo, usted no, va a, usted, no va, usted no va a permitir que le den estampillas, mamá. Hay que dejarlas a que eso se lo den a otra gente que necesita más. Entonces, él me ha enseñado, me enseñó, a pesar a la corta edad que él tenía, cuando yo vine aquí, que tenía 21 años, él me enseñó que, que aquí este es un país donde hay que venir a trabajar y no hay que venir a pedir a que todo se lo den regalado a uno. Bien. Gracias, Tita, por tu tiempo. Te quiero mucho. Yo también los quiero mucho. Los amo. Ustedes saben que los amo con todo mi corazón. Thank you all so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you know a thing or two more about immigration here in the United States. I know that you probably still have some unanswered questions, and this information is constantly evolving depending on the political climate here that we have in the United States, and also depending on the administration that is currently leading our country. But I do want to thank numerous people and sources for helping me out with the information on this podcast, starting with the documentary Which Way Home, the Intelligence Squared-based platform where you can listen to different debates on numerous topics. I want to thank Living Undocumented on Netflix. That was a wonderful documentary that really helped me uh, learn a lot about immigration. New York Times podcast called The Supreme Court Rules on DACA, NPR.org, The Washington Post, and of course all of those who I interviewed, Luis Diego Alanis, Catalina Velarde, Sochi Medrano or Maitita, and Patricia Corrales. So I want to thank everybody who participated in this podcast and all of you for listening to it. It really was uh, something that I've wanted to try out. It has been, immigration has been a topic that I've always been interested in. So I hope you learned something. I know that I did. And again, um, I hope that you enjoyed it. Thank you.